We're doing things a little bit differently uh, today than you would on any other day. Most of the service is normal. It's mostly what we do every week, but I will, instead of preaching a sermon, take pauses to explain everything that just happened or everything that's about to happen to the best of my ability. So I might be going fast because I got a lot to cover and I don't want to keep you here all night. The thing that we need to understand about worship and what we do here in the Anglican service, by the way, this is not unique to Anglicans. Uh, There are many traditions, Christian traditions, that follow a similar pattern. And the thing that we need to understand and know about it is, is that it's a great drama. It's a great drama. It's a play, in a sense. And everything that happens has some kind of meaning and some kind of symbolism to it, a reason for it. And there are four acts to this drama. The act of gathering, which we've done. There is the second act, which would be the liturgy of the word, where we read the Bible and we think about the Bible. We hear a sermon on the Bible. And the third act is the liturgy of the table, where we get ready to receive Holy Communion. And we do this every week at uh, Mission St. James. And then the fourth act is the act of Sending out. It's not just the act of getting, getting to go home or getting to go eat dinner. It's an act of being sent out into the world. Now, there's a couple of things I want you to know. You, I'll have you all look up at the ceiling for a minute. Most churches, not all churches, but church architecture is important. And what we see in many churches, you'll see a curve to the ceiling sometimes. A lot of ceilings in churches are, uh, have wooden planks that go all the way down. And this reminds us of, uh, of Noah's Ark. The symbolism of Noah's Ark is the symbolism of salvation. This is the picture that God gives us of salvation in the Old Testament. That judgment comes, but in, the, in Noah's Ark, there is salvation. There, are, there is a shelter from the storm. And so when we walk into a church sanctuary, we kind of notice this architecture. It resembles, it's to remind us of being inside, being inside of Noah's Ark. And that's why a lot of, you'll hear a lot of Anglicans call this not the sanctuary, but the nave, which is the same word where we get our word navy. It's the idea of a boat, a ship of some kind. And so that's just a really neat, as we walk in, just as we walk in, sometimes churches, we don't have a procession right now, but sometimes the, the clergy will come in and they'll be following a cross. We don't do that at Mission St. James yet, but, but it's the idea that we're coming into the Ark of Salvation together. We are a community that are, and we have been saved through grace by Jesus Christ, and we are gathering together um, that way. Now, there will be some things that you might see uh, happening. You'll see people crossing themselves. You might see people bowing at certain times. Well, the reason that this is happening is because as Anglicans, we believe in worshiping with our bodies. We're not just brains on sticks, right? We have a body. God has given us a body. And we use that body to worship him with. 
That's the whole point. And so you'll often see people crossing themselves. What is this? Well, this is, this is not a superstition. It can be done superstitiously. But really what this is about is marking ourselves as Christ's own. What we're not saying to each other, we're also saying it to the world, and we're saying it to the unseen powers and principalities around us. I belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to me. I am his. You know, the reformer Martin Luther said, I don't know why we don't cross ourselves every minute of every day. It's a, this is a tradition that we do in the church to mark ourselves as Christ's own. Sometimes you'll see uh, bowing. There's a few different ways you might see people bowing. You might see them slightly bow, or you might see them do what's called a profound bow. Um, there are certain parts of the liturgy where it's appropriate for us to bow, most significantly at the name of Jesus. Because the book of Philippians tells us, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And so we have a habit in our worship to bow at the name of Jesus in obedience to Scripture there. Now, you'll also see uh, bowing at other parts when the name of the, uh, the, we call it the trisagion, the three times holy, anytime holy, holy, holy is mentioned three times, that's a, a place you might see folks bow. Um, these, are, uh, these are acts of worship using our bodies. Another time you might see uh, bowing is you'll see uh, anyone approaching the altar. We're bowing to the cross. We're bowing to the altar. And the reason for this is because, yes, this is a nave, but it's also almost like God's throne room. If you've seen any, um, any, any um, TV shows where somebody's approaching the king, what, all, what they always do, they always bow to the king. And so this is our reverencing of our king, Jesus Christ. So those are some areas that you might see some bowing, some people crossing themselves. In a moment, we'll read the gospel from the middle of the aisle here, and we'll talk about what that means. You might see people crossing their, uh, uh, drawing a little cross on their forehead, on their lips, and on their hearts. This means that the, may the word of Christ always be in my mind, on my lips, and in my heart. But there's a saying that we have. It's all may, some should, none must. All may, some should, none must. What that means is we have freedom. You walk in and you see someone bowing, it's maybe strange to you. There's no you are not required to do that. No one is. These are acts that we do in reverence and using our bodies for worship. Now, I've already mentioned the, the albs and the stoles. Uh, these are uh, liturgical vestments, we call them. Um, Deacon Kevin is not here. You might notice uh, Deacon Kevin, has a, his stole goes around the, the side. The reason for that is, is because a deacon is always ready. A deacon has one foot in the world, and he has one foot in the church. And the prayer book says the deacon is to interpret the needs of the world's to, world to the church. And so the deacon is, uh, his, his stole's to the side, he's ready for action, he's ready to go. And that's what the point of that is. But everything else is about the same in terms of our investment. Some Anglican churches, you'll see the priest wear what's called a... Um, 
uh, chasuble. You'll see this in the back. There's an illustration of all of these um, for celebrating the, the Holy Eucharist. Some churches use those. Some churches don't. Um, Father West at All Saints famously calls it the poncho. Uh, it's not a poncho. It, it symbolizes the beauty of holiness. Um, and so that's why some priests will wear that. You'll see that in some Anglican churches. Final thing that I want us to say before we move on to our readings is that we gather for prayer. This is why we're here. We are here to pray. We're here to hear God speak, and we're here to respond to him. So, yes, this is the nave. This is where we all gather. But many Anglican churches in the architecture, there's an elevated space. We don't call this the stage. We call this the chancel. The chancel is sort of like the stage of our play, our, our drama that we're talking about. But it's the way, it's, it, and it's a poor reflection. Every one of them is. But it's to, it's to um, show us or give us a glimpse of the throne room of God. And so what you see happen up on the chancel you need to think throne room of God. You need to think Isaiah uh, chapter 6 or Revelation chapter 4, these grand visions of God on his throne. And so there's all this movement. That's why that we wear the, the white albs, because we're washed in the blood of Christ. And we see, and we'll talk more about the significance of the table. But what we need to understand is that what happens here is joining in What's already happening in the universe. It's already happening in heaven. It is ongoing, and we get to be invited and participate in that. And so that's what this drama is about. You'll often see me as a priest. Some, some priests will do what's called ad orientum. That means looking toward the east. This is probably not technically the east. I don't know my directions. That's east, yeah. So this is not, I call it liturgical east. <laughs> Liturgical East is important because the early church always saw that the East is where the sun rises. It's the realm of light. And so they would always face the, the East, and especially in the West, that's facing toward Jerusalem as well. So we face, some, you'll see some priests face the East when the priest prays on behalf of the people. We have this, uh, this idea, we call them collect. It's the word col collect, or collect, we call them, they're prayers. It's kind of a weird word, but it's a collection of all of our prayers together. And with, with, with the priest is able to uh, offer those prayers just pragmatically so on behalf of everyone else. This is a, a, a liturgical function of the priest. So the priest speaks to God on behalf of those present, but he also speaks on behalf of God to those who are present. Now, we have one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. That's absolutely true. This is a way that we, uh, we, because we are incarnational people, because the word of God needs to be spoken, needs to be publicly read, which we'll talk about here in a moment, that needs to be voiced. And so there's a, there's a person to do that. It's a liturgical function. That doesn't mean the priest gets to stand up and say whatever he wants. It means he better speak the word of God faithfully and truly. So those are just some, some thoughts that kind of help us orient us in this, this great drama that we've entered into. 
So with that in mind, we are going to move into our second act of this drama, which is the liturgy of the word. Well, now we come to Act 2, which is the liturgy of the word. We have just gone through it. We are actually in the middle of this act. So Anglican worship is made up of word and sacrament. These are very important words and concepts to the Anglican tradition. We, uh, in many ways, have come out of the Protestant Reformation with a huge emphasis on the importance of Holy Scripture. But we've also held on tight to a significance of the sacraments, especially Holy Communion and Baptism. We'll talk about that um, in Act 3. But what's important is the public reading of the Word. St. Paul told his protege Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4 to devote yourself to the public reading of the Word. Now, this is really important in that time because, of course, people didn't have a nice bound Bible on the shelf. In fact, the New Testament was in the process of being written at this time. So the scripture, the reading of the word, was the entirety of the Old Testament, the prophets, the Torah, the law, and especially the Psalms. And so the early church developed uh, a, a history, developed the tradition and the practice of making sure to always be reading the word of God and for there to be an exposition of the word of God. Now, Anglicans, we uh, follow uh, by uh, what's called a lectionary. So if you have a book of common prayer at home, you can go to the back and you can see there are two different lectionaries. There's one just for the daily office. It's a, a way to read through the entire Bible in a year. It'll take you through the entire Bible reading um, uh, starting in Genesis 1 all the way through Revelation. Um, so that's the daily office lectionary. But there's a Sunday lectionary as well. And it prescribes what readings that we do. Now, many Christian traditions use this lectionary or a very similar lectionary because it follows the life of Jesus. It follows what we call the church calendar. We'll talk about the church calendar here in a little bit, but those lectionary passages always contain at least an Old Testament reading, a psalm, a New Testament reading, which we did not read today for time, and then a gospel passage. Gospel passage is very important to always be read any service that we have Holy Communion. We want to hear the words of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's our lectionary, and it goes in three-year cycle. So right now we're in the year B. There's A, B, and C. We're in year B. Um, Each year focuses on a different gospel. So year A focuses on the gospel of Matthew. Year B, which we're in, focuses on the gospel of Mark. And year C on Luke. And then the gospel of John is woven all throughout the year um, for appropriate appropriate uh, uh, seasons. So that's the church calendar. And the thing we can understand about the church calendar is it's two cycles that have three, um, three seasons in each. So it's a three-part cycle that goes through the year twice. And the cycle goes like this. Purple, white, green. 
purple, white, and green. You go through purple season, white season, green season twice throughout the church calendar. Now, the church calendar actually begins usually either at the very end of November or the very beginning of December. It's the, usually the first Sunday in December. It changes from year to year. But it's the four Sundays that lead up to Christmas. And it's a purple season. Purple is um, uh, associated with penitence. It's associated with fasting, with self-denial. And so Advent is a time of recognizing our deep sin and our need for a Savior. And that leads us up to the giving of the gift of our Savior, Jesus Christ, which opens a white season, a season for feasting, for celebration, a season for joy after a season of repentance. And then always, that season is always followed by a season marked by green. Right now, that season, we've gone through, uh, we've gone through uh, Advent, and we went through the Christmas tide, we call it. There's actually 12 days in the season of Christmas. And now we're in the season of Epiphany. And that's a season of manifestation, where we see in the life of Christ that he is manifesting himself first to Israel and then to the Gentiles and to all of the world. And he goes about and does his ministry. And so it's a season, green is associated with growth and with mission, which is a season that we're in right now. We're about to enter into another cycle, though, because in a couple weeks we'll start with Ash Wednesday, the season of Lent, and we go back to purple season, where a season of fasting, a season of, of repentance and preparation. For what? For the celebration of the resurrection of the Son of Christ, a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. That's, that's Easter. That's the white season. And that goes for several, several weeks until we uh, hit the summertime usually. And, and that's what we call ordinary time or green season. It's not ordinary because it's just plain, blah, blah. No, it's ordinary because we're counting. This word ordinary, it, it means ordinal, like ordinal numbers. It's a counting. So we know we mark those days by the first Sunday after Pentecost, the second Sunday after Pentecost, the third Sunday after, and you just go and go and go until you finally get to Advent again. And it's a long season. But that's the church calendar, and that's what governs the lectionary readings and who gets to decide. So I don't get to decide what readings that we're going to have. I have to go by what the lectionary says, which forces preachers to always be dealing with the passages that are sometimes difficult passages. And it doesn't give me the freedom to be able to skip. Now, I, can, I could focus on the easier of the four, right? Um, but ideally, those, those passages usually, unless you're talking about the ordinary season, those passages usually um, coincide. They're, they have something to do with each other. The Old Testament is often um, fulfilled in the New Testament or in the gospel. The gospel procession. This is something that we, you just saw. You may have never seen this done. Uh, they, they, uh, the musicians started playing music, and we started singing. And this book that was up on the table is a gospel book. So it's just got all of the gospel readings for the entire year. And carrying this out to the middle this is important because what this does is it punctuates, it punctuates the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We needed to hear the word of God spoken to us by another human being. 
And so Christ came down from his throne in heaven to be among human beings. And so when the deacon usually comes and, and reads the, the gospel passage, he's reading from the middle, midst of the people, in the midst of the world, and making the light, his light shine in the darkness. Again, you might have seen people crossing their uh, a little cross on the forehead and uh, in the, on the lips and on the heart, that the word of Christ would always be in our minds, on our lips, and in our hearts. Then comes the sermon, which is what usually is what we're doing at this point. Sermon as preaching has always been important, and it's a huge part of the Anglican tradition. Anglicans aren't typically known for preaching. There's a lot that goes on in a service. Uh, preaching sermons in an Anglican church often are shorter than maybe what you're used to in other churches. Part of the reason, and we'll talk about this later, is that the gospel is proclaimed through the liturgy throughout the entire service. And because it's this drama, we're participating in a drama of the gospel as we go, through, go, go forth. And after that, we respond to God's word. We respond to God's word. God speaks and we listen. God speaks and we respond. And so when we receive the word of God, we respond in various ways. One of the ways is that we recite the Nicene Creed. This is a, we joke, a priest like to joke that this is to cover the, the bad sermons that the priest will preach, right? So if you hear a bad sermon, it gets cleaned up by the, the Nicene Creed, right? So, but this is, a, this is an ancient statement. Comes, it comes out of the Council of Nicaea in the year 325 A.D., um, and it's a summary of the faith. It's a summary of the faith. And a lot of times what you'll see there at the end is that people will start to cross themselves at the resurrection of the dead. You'll, you'll see that here in a moment. That's not just marking the resurrection of the dead. What is a creed? It talks about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Earlier I said this is an appropriate time to cross ourselves when we hear the Trinity, when we hear Father, Son, and Holy Spirit spoken about. A lot of times you'll see people cross themselves in reverence to the Holy Trinity. And that's what the Nicene Creed is. It's an exposition. It's a summary, really, talking about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that little, uh, that little, when people start to cross themselves, there's sometimes a little cross. Um, you'll see it. I think it's in this version. There's a little cross there uh, indicating, hey, don't forget to cross yourselves if you want to do that. So that's what that, that's what that is there for. Um, so that's, the, that's one way that we respond. Another way that we respond is by prayer. We respond by praying. Moment, in a few moments, we'll pray the prayers of the people. The prayers of the people are, they follow a, a pattern that can vary from church to church, but they're always praying for clergy, for missionaries, for the persecuted church, for public authorities, for the sick and those in need, and the faithful departed. And so these are, these are the things that we, uh, are, these are the concerns and cares that we bring to, uh, to, this, to every service. Then we go into confession and absolution. As we move toward closer and closer to the table, the liturgy gives us a time to confess our sins to Almighty God. 
The beautiful thing about this is that we do this together. That means that when we are sitting here having confessing our sins silently, we don't do this out loud and publicly, but when we're confessing our sins, we're in a room full of people who also have sins to confess. We are in this together, and we all need Jesus, right? And so this is the beauty of being able to confess our sins together and to hear the absolution Now, the absolution in the Anglican tradition, I say, is a very soft absolution. It is what it is, is assurance of our pardon in Jesus Christ. Assurance of his mercy and God's promise to forgive those who um, faithfully uh, uh, repent of their sins and confess. And then finally, this brings us to what we call the peace. Now, the peace is a reminder that we are forgiven. And because we're forgiven, we have peace between, with God. We've been reconciled with him, and therefore we are reconciled with one another. And so this gives us an opportunity to walk across the room or t- change, turn to uh, our spouse or turn to a child or a neighbor that maybe we've offended or some beef that we've had with and be able to be remembered or reminded, I'm forgiven, so I forgive. Because Christ has forgiven me, I also forgive you. It's a time to demonstrate our unity in Christ because we're about to have the meal of unity. And so this is a time for us to make sure that we're all right with our neighbor, that we are good with our neighbor, and that we have forgiven others as Christ has forgiven us. So that's the significance of the peace And that is the last thing that we do before usually we have announcements and then we move into what we call the offertory, which begins our third act, the liturgy of the table. When we are in our uh, third act, the act of or the liturgy of the table. Liturgy of the table is the liturgy of Holy Communion. It's our uh, third great act or third act in our great drama. And it begins with the offertory. So the offertory is often seen as this is the time when we are reaching into our pockets so that we can pay the pastor's salary and keep the lights on. That's not the way to look at this, okay? So the offertory has become one of, I think, one of the most important parts of the worship service to me because what this does is it acknowledges that everything that we have is a gift from God. Everything that we have is a gift from God. And every week we are faced with the opportunity to humble ourselves and to give back to God. And that's what the offertory is. We might do it a little bit different. You might have realized or noticed that our usher will, at the, at the right time, when the offertory begins, our usher will often bring, If you, some of you can't see it, but some of you can. There's a little table in the aisle here that have uh, a little dish that houses the bread and the wine, a, a little dish that houses the wine. And the usher will bring those up to uh, usually the, uh, the priest, and the priest will put those gifts on the table. Now, what the offering is, what this is, the symbolism of this is, is these are the two great things. Not only are the, they the elements that Jesus instituted for the celebration of the Lord's Supper, uh, the, the bread being his body and the blood, the wine being his blood. But it is also a, a symbol of we don't really do much of anything for bread and for wine. 
The bread that we eat are little wafers. It's just a very simple mixture of flour and water. The wine is just squeezed grape, fermented grape juice. It's very minimal of what we do. God gives us these gifts. We do something with it, and we offer them back to the Lord. And so that's the significance of the elements being brought up. But why is it brought up from the back of the church? Well, these are your gifts. It's your offering. These are, bought, these are purchased items from your giving. And so this is symbolically coming from all of the people. And it makes its way up to the table. But also, we acknowledge that our giving... Uh, that all of our, our finances, all of our finances are also a gift from the Lord. And so we tithe off of this. This word tithe, it just means a 10%. It's an Old Testament uh, concept that God gave to Israel, and it continues to this day, to tithe our first fruits, a tenth of our income. Now, there's a lot of controversy about whether you do this, if you tithe off your net or off of your gross I don't really care about that because this is, our, this is us giving what God has given to us a portion of it back. And it shows that we not only acknowledge that, but that we were completely dependent upon him to provide for us. We also give offerings. That's anything above our tithe. We give sacrificially. Um, and so we have a, an opportunity to do that. You'll receive the, the uh, baskets that come around if you write a check or have cash or um, if you want to give online, I'm really, really sorry. I completely forgot to put the little QR code in there for the online giving this week. But if you go to stjamesjackson.org, there's a give button there that takes you right to the same place. Um, but this is an opportunity and time to, to do that. So that's the significance of our offertory. And remember that we respond to what God has done, which is why we will sing the, the doxology um, and that's why we'll acknowledge this comes out of First Chronicles chapter 29, that all things come from you, O Lord, and from your own have we given you. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He's the richest uh, being in the universe, and everything that we receive, we receive at his grace and mercy and at his hand. And this leads us into what we call the great thanksgiving or the uh, Eucharistic prayer. Um, so this is the prayer that leads us into Holy Communion. And if you want to turn to page 11 of your bulletin there, that's just, this is where that starts. I just want to make a few brief comments as we walk through there so you can kind of see what's going on here. First, we call this Holy Communion because God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are in communion. The Trinity is in communion, the three and one. And so when we come to Holy Communion, we are communing with our God. That is that we are having a meal with our God. You ever sat down to a meal with somebody that there's strife with? It's really hard. It's really hard. We tend not to do that or not eat very much when we do. Because eating is a communal thing. It's a, when you share a meal with something, that's an intimate thing. And it shows that we have a unity together and that we are at peace together. And the reason we're at peace together is because we're at peace with God. So that's the significance of Holy Communion. But something else before we start to go through this is to realize that there is something called sacramental time 
sacramental place, sacrament, this concept of sacrament. This might be a new term for you. Um, this is uh, 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 the, the term sacramental, a very simple way of looking at this, is looking at and seeing how heaven meets earth. Heaven meeting earth. The spiritual, the Holy Spirit, anointing, consecrating earthly things for our benefit and for the expression of gratitude and love for our God. And so... We're joining in the sacrament of either baptism with water or like we're doing here with bread and wine. We're consecrating this. This is being or asking God to consecrate it rather. And so the earth that we inhabit is the earthly set of our drama. This is where it all takes place. And so as Anglicans, we have a sacramental worldview of all things. And so we are here in this heavenly throne room. And as we enter into this prayer, we'll talk about the Sursum Corda here in a second. As we enter into this, it's important that we understand that we are entering into an eternal moment. When the Jews would celebrate the Passover, if you've ever been to a Seder meal, you'll see this, where the, the, uh, the, uh, the liturgy that they go through is all in the present tense. What they're doing is they're, they, they are participating in the one original Passover event that we read about in the book of Exodus. They are participating in that moment. So there's a sacramental time or a, sort of a uh, time machine, you might say. And this is, uh, 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 there's a Greek word for this, which is called anamnesis. This is where we get the word remember or remembrance. This is why Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me because we want to participate in the event of Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection, which is what is happening at the table of Holy Communion. Much more could be said about that, but I want to focus your attention on page 11. Actually, it's probably on page 12. No, it's on page 13. Uh, the Sursum Corda. The Lord be with you and with your spirit. What does that say? Lift up your hearts. We lift them to the Lord. It is, let us give him thanks. Let us give thanks to the Lord. It's right for us to give him thanks and praise. We call this Eucharist because that's the, 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 the Greek term for thanksgiving. And so we are giving thanks um, and we are joining in with a cloud, great cloud of witnesses. It's not just us. And in this moment... We're not just off of, uh, off of Forest Avenue here in Jackson, Tennessee, but we are lifted into a heavenly reality. And you can see this, what's fo- what follows that little prayer is right to give, us, give him thanks and praise. So that little prayer is called a preface. That middle part will change with the seasons. But what I want you to see is that part that says, Therefore we praise you, joining our voices with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven who forever sing this hymn to proclaim the glory of your name. This is what the angels are doing constantly in eternity. Holy, holy, they never cease saying it. And you and I get to participate, join in that throne room and participate and sing along. Although we don't sing the Sanctus or Sanctus, uh, we say it, um, but we will eventually sing that together. Next, we move to the prayer of consecration. 
Um, let's see what I want to say about that. Uh, where it starts, Holy and Gracious Father, you will see in a moment. This is a very brief summary of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Christ is proclaimed in the liturgy every single Sunday. Every single Sunday. And there it is. Um, And that's important for us to always remember. And after that follows what we call the words of institution. These are the words that Jesus said about the bread and the wine. Um, And so you'll see that as well as we walk through it. Um, These are the words that are spoken by Jesus in the gospel. And as the priest, I'll speak over those words over the bread and wine. And those are Christ's words proclaimed over the bread and the wine. Those are Christ's words, okay? This is extremely important for us to remember. These aren't the priest's words. They're Christ's words being spoken. And so we ask in this prayer that God would do this, uh, this mighty uh, act of grace within Holy Communion. And then we proclaim this great, uh, great acclamation, a memorial acclamation that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. This is an ancient, ancient is one of the earliest uh, bits of liturgy that we have from the third century, uh, from the, what's called the Liturgy of St. James. So the church has been saying this for many, many years, and we get to participate in this. We move down again. I'm just going to kind of comment, uh, skipping uh, a, a little bit. <clears throat> that second paragraph on page 15, sanctify us also. No, the, I'm sorry, the first paragraph. We ask God to sanctify the bread and the wine by his word and Holy Spirit to be for his people the body and blood of his son, Jesus Christ. This is what we call the epiclesis, the calling down. We're asking God, his Holy Spirit, to come down and, uh, and sanctify this bread and this wine. Now, I'm just going to make a pause. It's not a place to really uh, expound on any of this, but there are basically three ways with, uh, that the church has looked at um, the Eucharist or Holy Communion. Um, there are great arguments and many, many books written on this. Most of us have probably grown up in what's called a memorial-only view, that these, the bread and wine are only merely symbols. They only are, are representations. There's not really anything different about or special about the bread and wine other than the fact that they uh, are, are symbols of Christ's body and blood. This is a fairly radical view and the uh, Great Reformation of the 1500s. Um, most of the church did not go there, although most of us have probably grown up with that understanding. You may have heard the Catholic understanding of transubstantiation. This is a Catholic view of what we would call the real presence of Christ being in the elements of bread and wine. Now, the Reformers and the, the Anglican Church have also rejected this concept of uh, transubstantiation, not because Anglicans don't believe that Christ is really present in the bread and the wine, but that, that the doctrine of transubstantiation really tries to solve the problem, solve that mystery, looks at it very technically in philosophical terms. And the English Reformers, the Anglican Reformers said, you know what? We don't know. This is a mystery that we cannot solve. 
So we believe that Christ is really, truly present. We don't know how. We receive this um, by faith. We could talk more about that if you have questions about that. But it's important for you to know that this is, this is uh, many Anglicans will disagree on a lot of this, of course. But this is the middle way for uh, Anglicans. That we, we, we think Christ is truly present. It's not memorial only, but we don't go as far as uh, the Catholic Church uh, does on that. And then we have the fraction at the bottom of fifth, uh, 15. That's the breaking of the bread, which, as you know, has a double meaning, doesn't it? When we get together at a table, we break bread together. We break bread literally when we come to the table of the Lord as well. And so what we see is that when we bring our gifts of bread and wine to the table and God blesses it, He gives it back to us and we break it as a remembrance that Christ was crucified and broken for us. So much more to say and I don't want to, we're already long in time here. Um, I do want to make this comment in the Eucharist. We do not sacrifice Christ over again because he has been crucified once and for all for us. Um, That's an important thing to remember. Again, we could talk more about this. um, But after all of that happens, we have the administration or the giving of Holy Communion. And so... As we close this act and move into and actually participate in what we've been talking about, I just want you to think of the fact that you came into this world with nothing and you can take nothing out of this world, which means that everything that you have is a gift from God. And so when we come to the table of the Lord, we come with empty hands. We were uh, taught at at one time to to make an X with our hands and have our palms open as we come to the table. As a posture of, I have nothing, and I bring nothing to God but myself. And he, what does he do? He graciously fills our hands and our hearts with not just a gift, but the gift of himself. We'll look at our final act as we are sent out. And what that means after we've received Holy Communion. But for now, let's uh, begin with the offertory. Act of all. It's the sending. And as we have been uh, received, as we have received the body and blood of Jesus... You and I are the body of Christ. And so when we go out from this place, we are carrying Christ with us. We are little Christs. That's what the name Christian means. Being little Christs out in the community, out in your home, out in your school, out in your workplace. Your faith is not private. I hate to tell you this. Your faith is very public. Because it matters. It matters the way that we treat others. others is the matter. It matters how we proclaim the gospel in the many ways that we do. 
And so as you go out, and I will pronounce the blessing, we're going to forego this last song. I hate to do that to you guys. We're really over, and I'm really sorry about this. St. James usually only it goes to about 520 or so. So uh, this is not a typical length, but I'm so thankful that you're here. Before I pronounce the final blessing and the dismissal, I just encourage you, take this home. We, we spent good money on it so that you can hold on to it. And even grab a few extra copies if there's somebody that you know that might be interested in learning a little bit about the liturgy. Uh, I've done this at other churches, this bulletin, and it's been a real big help for other people to explain, hey, this is why I go, this is the kind of church I go, and this is why we do what we do. Um, and it's a good reference. Just, hey, I forgot. What did Father Ben say about this? Uh, you can always look it up. Okay. Well receive the final blessing once I find it in the book because I did not print it. Baby girl. <laughs> <laughs> 